You can have a great time anywhere if you don't expect it to be someplace else. Bruce Griffin Henderson is a writer and chief creative officer of Smile Direct Club, a next generation oral care company. He previously served as chief creative officer for North America at the WPP agency, Geometry Global, and global chief creative officer at the IPG experimental agency, Jack Morton Worldwide, after stints at the pioneer digital firm agency.com and Ogilvy, New York. Bruce is the author of Waiting, a nonfiction book about waiters and waitresses, and was a contributor to Gig, a nonfiction work about Americans and their jobs. His first novel, Lucky King, is set to be published in May of 2021. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you too. And uh, I'm really excited to hop in to hear more about your journey. Uh, As you know, we generally like to start uh, all the way back as far as we can. So tell me a little bit about kind of your earliest childhood memories, your family, your upbringing, where you're from, just you know, a little bit about that part of your life. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma called Stillwater, which is also uh, home to Oklahoma State University. My father was a college professor. And uh, I have three sisters um, who I always hasten to say are much smarter than I am and uh, very accomplished as well. And uh, we grew up in this town. You know, it was an interesting town. It was, uh, Oklahoma is a very conservative place. My father was a college professor. There was a little bit of the, a little bit of division between people associated with the university and those uh, more associated with, you know, traditional Oklahoma occupations like farming and so forth. And um, it was an interesting place to grow up. You know, like many people who grew up in my era, it was a somewhat innocent time in the sense that we didn't lock our doors when we, when we went away during the daytime or even on vacation. And uh, at a very early age, I got really interested in music and started playing guitar and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and really made my choice of where I went to college at the University of Texas based on uh, a place that I felt had a good music scene. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, interesting. So I'm just curious, you know, just kind of right out of the gate, you know, you're um, alluding to kind of this difference um, between, you know, having a a family, a father, you know, that's uh, involved in an academic setting versus maybe kind of the traditional Oklahoma farming or whatever else, you know, kind of fell more into the the traditional industry. And and I'm wondering, like, well, what was that like? Like, were your parents, where were they from? And 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 kind of did they go to uh, Oklahoma for the work and 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 then have to deal with that shift and just how prevalent was that for you uh knowing that you know you you ended up uh kind of going into music you know it feels like there was clearly a, a, a um kind of a, a environment that facilitated something that maybe just wasn't consistent with the rest of the atmosphere you were in yeah it's a, it's a good question and also you know in the fullness of time I've come to a different understanding of how people feel included or excluded. You know, I um, I consider myself very fortunate. You know, we had a stable household, and uh, while we were n- no means wealthy, we we certainly had enough food to eat. And 
uh, my parents were from the Northeast and my father taught colonial history. And uh, he used to say, you know, somebody has to die for you to get a job because there aren't that many colonial history uh, professorships. But um, I think there definitely was a feeling of otherness uh, being there. But I also have come to believe, as I said, as I get older, I think many people grow up feeling like they're outside the norm. Um, so I certainly don't think I'm unique in, in that respect. But I also felt I think times have changed a great deal. You know, I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. And one thing that's dramatically different now, I like to say I'm a, I'm a really old digital native because mm -hmm. I started getting into the web in 1995 after uh, a music career and a career um, as a freelance writer. But, you know, I, what strikes me is I look back on my life because I did pursue a music career and made a number of albums. I made an album name and A&M Records and uh, did a number of things is that unlike today, you know, I was a kid, I was obsessed with music and I would look at these album covers and hold them in my hand. And I had no idea how to get from where I was to that. And I think that you know, kids today have a different view of that because of the web. You know, mm -hmm. I always thought when I moved to New York in the early 80s, my friends who had grown up in New York had had, uh, you know, pretty much to a person, if they wanted to pursue something in the arts or really any field, either their parents knew somebody or knew somebody who knew somebody who had done that. So, uh, you know, even talking to my parents about, oh, I, I'd love to have a career in music they had no idea how to to make that happen and and um and I didn't either so you kind of had to go back then without the web you kind of had to go find mm -hmm. uh, your destiny mm -hmm. but yeah definitely going back to the original question i think it was uh it was definitely sort of a feeling of outsiderness my parents were extremely liberal oklahoma is mm -hmm. perhaps the most conservative state in the union mm -hmm. uh, arguably so it uh definitely shaped that mindset. Yeah. But that's also, I think, a writer's perspective. You know, I'm a writer by vocation. I think many writers are sort of introverts. And mm -hmm. um, Yeah, well, I'm just I'm a little uh, intrigued, and, and maybe this is just kind of a personal fascination and kind of why we, you know, spend some time on the podcast talking about these early days. You know, I, I'm really getting the sense that, you know, you had this environment that you were growing up in that really facilitated you being um, yourself and, and kind of following your interests despite what might maybe, uh, you know, the broader environment was like. Your parents clearly did that. They were liberal in a conservative state. They were in an occupation that was, you know, maybe not as celebrated in that part of the country. Um, and and so did they did they kind of really... Um, model that for you? Did they did they speak to it? You know, or or tell me a little bit about kind of how the music really grabbed you. Um, you know, what was it? Was it a combination of like something inside of you that was really drawn to it, or how much of it was really influenced by your your family? That's a really good question. My my father was a bit of a of a player himself. He had played. Uh, he played trombone, he played guitar, he played in swing bands growing up. Um, I think he had had some musical aspirations, but uh, I remember actually much later when I graduated from college and announced that I wasn't in fact going to uh, pursue a straight job, but instead I was getting in a van with five other people and going to New York to live in a one bedroom apartment together. Uh, 
him saying, you know, and I said, you know, look, I'm going to try to make a go of this music thing. And he said, uh, I said, are you disappointed? And he said, no, I just don't want you to be disappointed. And, um, and, you know, I got disappointed and that's what life is about many times. You know, you get disappointed until you're not anymore, but yeah, I got, you know, when I grew up in a slightly different time when I, and everyone I knew was completely obsessed with music, you know, it wasn't a background to us. It was very central to our lives. And, you know, it was a different experience. We had to get in a car and go to Tulsa or Oklahoma City to see a concert. Music videos hadn't come along yet. So the only thing I'd seen of the musician that I loved was still images on a record. And I just knew I wanted to do that. Um, and how, how, and how young were you when you really kind of knew you wanted to do that? Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing. You know, um, I just spent three days in a conference uh, with uh, Peter Diamatis and this kind of group of futurists. And they, they, they talk every year. This is my probably fifth year doing it about moonshots. And, yep. um, you know, in Peter's language is uh, your, your MTP, your massively transformative purpose. And, and over the three days, and I've seen this year after year, you know, there are people who um, leave what you would think would be kind of like dream jobs um, because they are just really absolutely on fire, lit up about doing something. They just cannot live with themselves if they don't chase it. And, you know, I think sometimes that's uh, inherent. You know, sometimes you, you, you catch a a, a bug or, you know, you, you kind of ride a wave, something that kind of really takes you. Uh, but it sounds to me like, you know, at seven years old, uh, for whatever reason, this is like a calling. Yeah, it really was. And it's interesting as time went by, you know, I'm not a great player. I'm a really good songwriter. Uh, music's a really interesting profession because like many sort of so-called tournament professions, like acting or music, you can be very, very good and still not succeed. But what I came to understand over time, and it's interesting as I look back now at sort of my career trajectory, I've seen this, is that, you know, my real calling was to write. I'm a songwriter. I've written a book. I've just written another book. And I ended up being a copywriter in advertising before I went on to become a creative director and so forth. But I think sort of that form of self-expression through writing was truly my calling and something I felt I absolutely had to do. And also it was a, you know, it was a very, I think it was quite a different time because in the late seventies, early eighties, you could release independent singles, which we did. And the drinking age on most college campuses was 18. So you could go from town to town and play college bars and sort of get by. I mean, and by get by, I mean, get by, we moved to New York again, six of us, Living in a one-bedroom apartment, we paid ourselves $50 a week. The band paid for the rent and the parking space for our van, and we would tour the country, and we did this for a few years. And, um, and you know, got by and had a, a, an incredible time and, and saw a great deal of the United States. You know, as I like to say, we saw the worst part of every town in America because that's where the bar is. And, um, and it was a great way to get exposed to, you know, what, and each, as you know, and each experience we have informs the next. And I, I 
I came to have a real fascination for just people and their dreams, which led me to write my first book, Waiting, which was about waiters and waitresses and oral history and lead to some of the work I did later. But yeah, it, um, let me just uh, hop in there because I think what you're touching on is something that is really important. Um, this idea that everything leads to everything can lead to the next thing, and you know what what you know you said and and, and uh, or I guess maybe I I labeled a calling, you know from uh, a music side, you know this this thing that you have at seven years old, it feels like it's absolutely you know a a real uh, calling. It's something in you. You're, it's around your family. You want to do it, right? So much so that when your dad tells you, "I don't want to be disappointed," you say, "I'm going anyway," right? And and yet, it ends up not actually being the the calling, right? But it was really really important to get you to the next thing. And so in, in, you know, kind of a mystical way. And, you know, I, I, you know, kind of believe it's, it's actually not that, you know, my, my belief is like, it's, it is actually a part of a, a design, um, a grand design, right. That we don't always understand. It, it, it really was a calling. It just wasn't the calling or the final calling. And, and that seems to be kind of, what happened for you and i think you know what's happened for me and kind of how how it goes if you're open to it i think it i think you're hitting on something very interesting which is i think it is a calling i just don't think it was shaped in the way i thought it would be right. shaped you know i pursued music i made records i got a record deal the record didn't sell i started writing other things i got a book deal Booked it okay, you know. It, and when you look from the perspective of where we are today, it's possible to string these things all together in a straight line. Yeah. But as you're having the experience, as you're walking through life, it can very often feel like you're going down blind alleys. And all I knew was that I wanted to write and that I wanted to find a way to make a living doing it. And I basically took any writing I could find. As a result, you know, I've written. Uh, for magazines, I've written for television, I've written books, I, and now you know I'm in advertising because I got very interested in the publishing potential of the web when it came along. Mm -hmm. And there was a very early editorial website called Word.com, and a guy called Sabin Streeter, who was one of the editors of the book Gig, which I was a contributor to, did essentially what we're doing now, but in a different format. He went out and asked people about. Uh, you know, the work they did and mm -hmm. they compiled those those columns into a book. But it's one of the reasons why I think, and, and this leads back to an earlier part of our conversation, I think it really is important to figure out what you like doing because that's your calling and the shape of the job it becomes or the nature of the living you make or the success you will have uh, derives from that, but isn't completely determined by it. So, mm -hmm. You know, when I uh, often when I speak to students now, you know, I have a good job. I'm a chief creative officer uh, of an advertising uh, agency within a brand, but I've had that role in three different agencies before this. And so I'll often speak to students at school and they'll say, oh, you know, what's your aspiration? You know, you have, is there a bigger job after this? And 
I'm a writer by vocation. My aspiration is to write a sentence that makes you have to read the next one. Mm-hmm. That's at the core. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's really important to attach yourself to that level of your vocation, mm-hmm. which is. Do you love the thing you do and is it incredibly important and must you find a way to do it yeah. and hopefully make a living doing it? And, and what I hear when I hear you say that, that seems really important is that you, you aren't anymore. Um, and I don't know if this is true or not. So, so, you know, please tell me, I guess maybe I should uh, do a better job and just ask you a question <laughs> instead of make an assumption. Um, you know, I like assumptions too. <laughs> I guess, you know, the question really is, is have you been able to let go of attachment to outcome? You know, because when I hear you say your job is to write a sentence that makes you want to read the next one, it seems to me like you're so dialed in on just being a writer that all you want to do is write what's in front of you in that moment, you know, and, and maybe there's some, you know, broader, um, attachment to how somebody responds to it, but it isn't so much about the deal, the, the, you know, the, the record label, the book deal, the being something or somebody other than just being a writer. Is that true? Or is there still kind of the attachment to outcome that, you know, is, is we all wrestle with? You know, I'd be lying if I said there was no attachment to outcomes. At the same time, I think the relative importance has changed a great deal. I think, you know, when you start out wanting to be something like a musician or be in a rock band, you have visions of of what that lifestyle looks like and outcomes. Um, And as time goes by, I think if you're fortunate and you really love what you do, you become much more deeply invested in the act of doing it. Um, I do know I still play music. I haven't released anything since 2000, but I've, I have a collection of new songs that COVID has given me because uh, I work from home now and I'll probably release something, but it feels much better to not be doing it with an outcome in mind. And I don't think it, it's hard. It's an interesting question because I don't know if this is accidental or coincidental, but I wanted uh, a career in the music business so badly and, you know, got a record deal and then made more records after that and, uh, you know, appeared on national TV and that kind of stuff. But sometimes it seemed like the more I wanted it, the more that I wanted the outcome and the harder I tried for it, in many ways, the more elusive it became, or at least, uh, I didn't achieve the success I was striving for. When I got into the business I'm in now, I came into it, you know, wanting to make a living writing. And uh, my path forward has seemed so much easier than when I wanted an outcome much worse. Yeah, um, yeah there's so a... There's it's a, hard to say. Yeah, there's a, there's a um, just something I want to like, you know, click on a little further with you there, you know, that I think is um, something we all grapple with and, you know, some more than others, you know, but it, it does feel like there is something incredibly valuable about really letting go. And when I hear you create, that you've been creating music during COVID and you probably will release it, but that's not why you were doing it. It feels like it's about something else, right? It's about 
pleasure, maybe joy. I don't know. Maybe you can elaborate on what that was like or what that was about so that maybe, you know, people can hear how it it goes to kind of actually let go a little bit. Right. And it's, and it's like this kind of interesting thing, which I think is totally okay, actually. And, and, and maybe even really good thing where you might actually release it. Right. And it might actually become something monumentally successful. I mean, however you define that. Right. But, but, but that wasn't where you started. Uh, and so there's something about that maybe you could just speak a little bit more to, because I think this is really important. Yeah, I think there are, it's an interesting thread of this conversation because I think the work I'm doing now, both with writing fiction and, uh, and writing and recording music, is really about, in many ways, of course, communicating what I'm thinking and feeling, which has always been a piece of it. But as important, it's about the craft. I think, you know, one of the things I often, again, talk to students about is appreciating craft. I think people, particularly people who are not involved in the arts or the fine arts, often think that people who do that stuff, it's just pure inspiration. But I think almost anyone who writes or paints or dances or or any other form of artistic expression would tell you that it's about 2% inspiration and the rest is really craft. And I think, you know, you come to appreciate the craft more. And I certainly have during this period. And I think I, I record both to see how I've matured as a writer and a player and a singer, and also for the pure pleasure of it. At the same time, I think that, you know, a career, and I think it's one of the reasons why I found moving forward in advertising, and I was very fortunate to get into it in an age when most people actually retire, (laughs) was that, you know, when you're working towards a career in the fine arts, you work a basically every waking hour. I, I I think it's impossible to overstate how hard people in the fine arts work at what they do. And often, you know, for uh, little or no pay, I have great respect for people who choose that path. I came to a point in my life where I just felt there were diminishing returns. And also, you know, I had a, a, I had a, a life event that caused me to need health insurance and I had to sort of leave at the age of 40. So, I followed a different path, but in terms of, you know, being able to appreciate what I do now, I have a very, very different impression of it. And it is really about the joy of creating stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, you, you're touching on a really important point on the craft piece. You know, I, I, what I would say is, you know, my experience is that whether it be fine arts or any profession of choice, that if you view it as a a love, uh, a passion, a um, you know a, a kind of uh, calling of sorts, you 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 really want to get into all of the intricacies of it and struggle through it and learn it and get better at it, and it, it's about something that feels way more a part of you than just something that you do. Right, something that you're trying to do to make money or to get famous, or right, you 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 love it so much. It's like I don't know anything. You know, there's certain people you talk to or conversations you have that just feel so effortless and energizing, yeah. right? And you want more of that. That's that's kind of you know to me this 
this craft piece where it's like when you when you find that, you don't have to even look at it like, well, I want to master this craft. It's like, I'm just doing it because I love it. I can't get enough, right? And, I, and I'm curious uh, if you don't mind kind of speaking, you mentioned, you know, a life event. Um, if, you, if you're comfortable sharing a little bit more about that, you know, oftentimes I find that that is a catalyst for change uh, for whatever reason. Um, is that something that you can elaborate on? Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to. Yeah, it's, um, you know, in 1999, I just released uh, my second solo album on an independent label in the U.S. And it was doing quite well. I was invited to play on David Letterman's show. And um, as is often the case, it was an independent label. Uh, Letterman was a fan of the type of music I did. So I I got invited to go on the show and it was wonderful. And um, as is often the case, you know, there wasn't great distribution of the record. I was on indie label, so it didn't produce a huge step change in, in my lifestyle. But it was one of those moments in the life of an artist where you feel like, oh, wow, the record's getting good reviews. I've just been invited to be on this national show. Everything's great. And, uh, you know, those are the types of things as an artist that, that help renew your commitment to, to the path you're on. But then I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And uh, so I basically had to step out of my life for a year. And several things happened. One, uh, I didn't have health insurance, which wasn't, uh, or I just received health insurance, but it didn't cover my treatment. Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, I was a musician and not an insurance salesman because uh, my musician buddies did a benefit concert and helped cover my treatment at Sloan Kettering in New York, which was great. But coming out of that, I realized that having that type of lifestyle was no longer an option for me. So I needed to look for a full-time job. And it's interesting, you know, this is somewhat unique to the United States among development, developed countries. As I started working in advertising, I had occasion to, to work around the world. But I was in Denmark and working on a project uh, for a client that was concerned wind energy. And we spent a good part of the summer... Um, looking at wind farms in the ocean and photographing them and stuff. It's a wonderful project. But in the course of that, I came to know a bunch of Danes well. And what became very clear to me, since they have national health, was that people don't take jobs for health insurance. Yeah. <laughs> they, they do the work they want to do because they want to do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that wasn't an option for me. So uh, Fortunately, you know, I found a way into during the dot-com boom to a very early a pioneer web shop called agency.com and found, uh, you know, to touch on what we talked about earlier in our conversation, that all my experiences I had in life were applicable to, to what I've been doing. You know, mm-hmm. suddenly I was, yes, making websites and ads for commercial companies, but I was writing. I was uh, writing dialogue. I'd, I'd written a season of a kid's show before that. I was recording music. And suddenly all the crafts I'd put together worked in this occupation. And uh, you know, I was able to make a living doing, as I like to say, it was a terrific plan C. But it was really because I'd had cancer and I couldn't, I couldn't live without health insurance. Yeah, and, and so I'm wondering kind of, you know, following this this thread about, you know, kind of how your life is unfolded and sometimes maybe not, you know, according to plan. In, in hindsight, how do you view 
the experience of having cancer and and having the fact that you needed to switch careers to get insurance um you know how how does that i, I hear you you know and uh, your your conversation or the converse i hear i hear your um understanding of what's happening in other parts of the world and i agree with you this is a problem in in our country it's it's shocking that it's still a problem but it is um and i get that point but from from a personal standpoint how do you look at that experience in hindsight you know it's multifaceted <laughs> i think you know in the end i would say and it's hard to tell whether we self justify or delude ourselves but i would say it was an incredibly positive experience first of all i think uh I don't know if I could have continued living the way I was living, you know, driving from town to town in a van and playing gigs and, you know, trying to make a living. Uh, secondly, it gave me a very uh, good window into the nature of human life and mortality. And thirdly, one thing that was really unexpected was it gave me a completely different view of how important I am, which is. Not at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can step complete. I literally stepped completely outside of my life for a year. And, you know, the world went on absolutely fine without me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I was overwhelmed uh, by the compassion and care of my friends mm-hmm. at that time. It really changed my perspective on life 180 degrees in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that regard, I'd say it was incredibly positive. I wouldn't wish cancer on anybody. Yeah, but I I find that uh, m- many fellow survivors take something positive away from the experience. Yeah, and I think that you can choose to uh, decide what you want to take away. And you know, I'm I'm happy to hear that you have chosen the experience of it being positive. And and I and I say that in that like I think it really is a choice, you know that that you know you have that kind of a perspective um, that you could. Other people, there are certainly people that say, you know, this happened to me, and you know, it screwed up my this or that, right? But you have learned from it in a really profound way, a way that shifted you um, permanently. Probably, and it and it led you into different work, and and I and I tend to believe this is just my choice, my belief that sometimes these changes of state, these state changes, are are almost like forced upon us because we might not do it on our own, and um, not that I not that like you wish like you said cancer on anybody, and it's hard to kind of grapple with. Death and and you know near death and and the threat of death being something that's like put on us for our benefit. That's a tough concept to really um, embody, but it does feel like sometimes that's the case. That sometimes we need some sort of seriously eye-opening, state-changing event to really get us to next. I I completely agree with that. I also hope it's shaped. You know, over the years, I've, you know, I have a job that can be very time intensive. 
and I love my work and, and I love the places I have worked and, and I love what I do, but I hope it's shaped the way that I interact with people in my work and the people who over the years have, have reported to me and so forth. I think it gives you a different perspective on, you know, I, I call myself a writer by vocation and that I am. And it's a vocation in the sense that it's something I have to do and would do whether I made money for it or not. But, you know, work is work and life is life. And I think I have the perspective now that, and have had for, for a number of years, even, even times in the agency world when I was working, you know, 100 hours a week, which was not completely uncommon, that there are a whole bunch of things that are more important than work, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that people's families and, 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 you know, I know, I know this for myself, I would say without hesitation that the most important things in my life are my relationships with the people around me, Mm -hmm. um, my loved ones. I I think it changes those things. And I think you do, I do think you do, and it comes and goes. Most of the people I know who have gone through serious health crises, you know, have a, a different type of gratitude about living. Um, I wish I could say I possess that all the time. Sure. But, <laughs> but I yeah. don't. Yeah, I think it's it, it's natural for that to be heightened at times and and kind of fade a little, but there's some sort of change that I think doesn't um allow you to ever go back to the to the way that you were and you know, then you get another reminder in some other way and you know, it's just kind of part of the evolution of you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, if you're actually paying attention and willing to embrace the learnings along the way, it's, it, it becomes part of, you know, your evolution as a, as a human. And, and I think that's really, you know, a, a beautiful thing and, and kind of what we're all intended to be doing is learning from these experiences and, and becoming better beings, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's yeah. So that was um, really the end of a chapter in my life that led me into the work I do now. Yeah. And um, before we go into the work that you do now, which I do want to yeah. get into, because I'm really curious about your experience with with writing, both you know agency work and uh, the work that you're doing, authoring your own books. I am curious. I have to ask because I have a son who is a freshman. At the University of Texas, Texas, right now. Ah, uh, great. What was it like to be in Austin uh, in those years? You know, it's it's certainly uh, a, a very different place today. But you know, the the kind of what made Austin Austin, I think, was really happening at that time. So, talk a little bit about that. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because yesterday uh, I was talking with a production company in Austin and they were sort of evenly divided between people who say they absolutely love Austin now and they and others who said they wished it was what it used to be. Austin was great. I moved to Austin in 1979 and, um, and it was a really interesting time musically and also for the town of Austin. The University of Texas was a great school and I got a wonderful education. And really met some wonderful people there, none at school, all through the music business. Um, but at the time, uh, the town was, you know, in the 70s, it, there had sort of been this cosmic cowboy thing happening with Willie Nelson and, and uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard and 
all these guys down there. And there was this sort of confluence, but this was common in the music industry in the 70s. There was a uh, there was a burgeoning punk scene, which is sort of the piece I was involved in. And there was this incredible rhythm and blues scene. Stevie Ray Vaughan was playing clubs then. Mm. And the fabulous Thunderbirds featuring his brother, Jimmy Vaughan, were playing clubs then. And uh, Delbert McClinton was playing clubs in Austin. He was from there. And then there was still the Cosmic Cowboy thing happening. And then there was this punk thing happening. It was this incredible town. And Everybody loved all the other music. If you went to see Joe Ely at, you know, a club, uh, and Joe's one of my favorites, it, the room would be full of <laughs> like these hippie cowboys and punks and everybody liked everything. And it really was an incredibly magical time. And at the time, Austin was quite cheap. You know, I mm. lived in a small house right off the campus and it was $165 a month and it was uh which is I'm sure not what your son's experiencing um no and, <laughs> yeah, and, no. Very and, different. and the entire metropolitan area at the time had uh I think 450,000 people and now it's close to 2 million and you know Austin's expanded out towards Round Rock and Bastrop and these communities that were once small towns are sort of now on the edge of Austin um I loved Austin then. I love Austin now. Mm-hmm. I, I felt the same way about New York. You know, when I lived in New York and I lived there for three decades, people would always say, oh, it was so much better back, mm-hmm. name your time. And it was great then. But I think, uh, and this I learned, it's interesting, this I learned from touring. In a, it, it, one of the first things I learned touring was you can have a great time anywhere if you don't expect it to be someplace else. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to New York expecting it to be Austin, or if you go to Kansas City expecting it to be Albuquerque, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have a lousy time. But if you meet people who live there and kind of do what they do, you can have a great time. And again, I, Austin was magical then, and I still think it's magical. Yeah. One of my sisters lives there. As a matter of fact, interesting fact, the manager of the band I moved to New York with, a guy called Roland Swenson, he moved to New York with us and lived in that one bedroom apartment. And after a while, decided he couldn't live with the crazy band anymore, moved back to Austin, started South by Southwest. Oh. <laughs> so, oh. so Roland uh, was the smartest of all of us. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, but it was, a uh, you know, it's always, and I, I think, Nashville, where I where I live now, has several things in common with that with Austin, which is you know Austin has a great university. Um, uh, it's physically beautiful; it's in the hill country, and there's water nearby. But I think having you know I'm partial to university towns because I grew up in one. But I think having a great university in a town really forms a type of culture that's conducive to music and a certain type of lifestyle, and you know. Nashville's the same way. It has Vanderbilt. And in many ways, it's Austin's sister city with the music business here. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, Austin was Austin was paradise. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What people say it's true. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I kind of expected you to say that, you know, and and I like the fact that you also still think it's great. And you know, we have dear friends in Nashville, and you know, we've talked to them about how Nashville's changed and. You're right about New York. I think, you know, your perspective of, you know, it, it, it depends on kind of, you know, your mindset really and, and it just kind of embracing change in general. Or if if you don't like how it's changed, you know, find someplace else that speaks more to you. That's okay too. 
Um, yeah, or or help change it. I or think, help change you know, it, right? Even better. What I've come to realize, you know, one of the a recipe for suffering and dis- disillusionment is expecting things not to change. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. Yeah. I think you simply have to find what's good about your situation or the place where you live or the people you're surrounded with or else you're, you're, you're just going to be unhappy. Yeah. You know, I've seen that, you know, a lot in people over the last year that are moving from LA to Austin and they're getting there and going, well, actually the housing's not that much uh, cheaper. And when you factor in, you know, the lack of labor, you know, the services are more expensive and um, it's really hot here and, and <laughs> right, you know, and, and so it's like wherever you are, there you are. <laughs> so, exactly. I was about to say the same thing. You yeah. know, I think if many, many cliches are absolutely true and that's one of them, yeah. which is, you know, the one cliche, cliche I think is not true is you can't judge a book by its cover when you're talking about books themselves because <laughs> I find that great books often have great covers. Um, but I think... Uh, <laughs> My father-in-law who spent his career in, in retail said, he used to say, people that think money doesn't matter are shopping in the wrong stores. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I do think, I do believe that wherever you go, there you are. You know, it, it, it's often not the place that's making you unhappy. Uh, well, let's talk, let's talk about your, your writing and, and your work today. I, I am really intrigued by the path that you've taken as a writer and, and the work that you're doing now. And um, I'm curious to hear either about the agency work or um, the the novels that you've written, the the nonfiction work that you're writing. I, I'm curious about all of it. I I have a an intrigue with writing myself. I see a lot of I, I write for kind of my own pleasure journal, you know, that just kind of um, moving energy. Um, but I, but I I have a curiosity with you know well maybe. Um, there's something more there, and I and I love uh, the art of it. I have um, friends that are in the movie business, and we talk about scripts and and you know I see a lot of people writing books today in the business world that are really just used as like fancy business cards, which which has never really spoke to me. I think it lacks the the, the kind of um, real creative art part of it. So. Um, yeah, give me some insight into what it's like to be a writer and, and, and what you're up to. Yeah, I think it's, it started for me, I started writing about what I knew. I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote some work for a magazine called Oklahoma Today in Oklahoma about the history of music in Oklahoma. And uh, that was after, uh, you know, having written... Um, a number of songs and release a number of records. And, and, you know, I've always been fascinated with the written word. And then I started getting other small writing jobs for, for magazines and little TV things. But I, uh, I, I grew up working in restaurants and I'd waited tables. And I noticed that a lot of people had written books about restaurants, but they were always about the kitchen and the chef and nobody had ever written about the front of the house. And when I worked in restaurants, if you've ever worked in a restaurant or hung out in one, the people who work there are absolutely fascinating. So I was really interested in both the act of how people felt about their jobs, but moreover, sort of what their aspirations were in life. So 
Strangely enough, one of my customers, uh, this is way, way, way back in the early 90s. One of my customers, customers in a restaurant I was working in it was a, a literary agent. And I said, oh, I have an idea for a book. And she got this look of horror on her face. And I said, oh, I bet a lot of people say that to you. And she said, you know, they, they do. And she said, but go ahead and tell me. And I told her that I wanted to write a book of waiter stories. And she said, you know, that really is a good idea for a book. So mm-hmm. I wrote a proposal and we sold it to Plume, which was a division of Viking Penguin. And they paid me to go out and interview people and about their work. So I did that. And that led to the work I did for Word.com, which was also interviewing people about the work they do. I realized early on, uh, after having been in the music business and sort of done some production work in TV and movies, that I find real people much more interesting than celebrities. <laughs> and so the job of going out and interviewing people about their work was, was really interesting to me. And from there, you know, I started working in agencies as a copywriter and, and really liked that because in, in many ways, when you're writing, and the early work was for websites, big corporate websites. When you're writing about a company, you have to you have to have an enormous amount of curiosity. You have to understand what they do and figure out how to communicate that in a way to people that's meaningful. So there's a real journalistic bent to it, which I loved. And then I had I uh, along the way, I've always been a big reader, and um, I had a, a writing mentor in New York who'd written plays and short stories and novels and. After he published a novel, which I absolutely loved, I said, you know, when's your next one coming out? And he said, well, I'm not sure I'm going to write another one. I said, why? And he said, it takes too much stamina (laughs) to write a novel. So Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to see if I could sustain that interest in a story and a narrative uh, for that, you know, a novel's usually 100,000 words or 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 more. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a book that that, uh, is going to come out in May. and, you know, it's called Lucky King, and I wanted to see if I could do that. So it's been, that too was also really a labor of love and craft. Yeah. You know, I think a, a lot of people have, again, really, and, you know, it's why I listen to podcasts like this one. I, I find people's stories incredibly interesting, their, their life stories. But I'm also a huge fan of narrative fiction, mm-hmm. and I wanted to see, and I think many, many people, Many people have have a story in them, but then it becomes about the craft. Can you sit in the chair for a year and write page after page? And moreover, can you go back and and read what you've written? And finally, are you willing to revise it ten times? <laughs> so, yeah, I I think that's really like not understood um, by the kind of non writing world or the novice world. You know that that. It is really this, you know, idea of mastering craft. <clears throat> there has to be a level of commitment, and and in order, I think, for there to be a level of commitment, there's got to be something more motivating behind it. You know, there has to be a love for it because it is grueling. You know, when you think about great work and you think about the level of detail that somebody goes to to, to paint a picture, to describe a situation, to really give you a connection to a character that doesn't exist, you know, um, you've got to really get into it. You have to like imagine every little sense, you know, and it, and that is really, really hard work. And then, like you said, not only do you have to do it once, 
you have to go back and you have to read it and then and do it again and again and again 10 times however long it takes i mean it's 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 really uh i think it's just so admirable to to be that committed and that passionate about doing something um you know seeing that all the way through and, and i am a little curious you know you started off you know talking about nonfiction work and you know kind of people's stories obviously you know i share your your um enjoyment for that and, and, and see the benefits. And that's why we, I'm doing this podcast is I just think there's so much benefit in, in the story part. What, what I'm curious about is when you, when you write uh, a novel, how is it that you pull from real life experience to create these characters? In other words, like, are they really people that you have experienced in life and 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 then you're kind of creating them to be whatever you want them to be for this novel, or you know how much of it is really based in reality? That's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to it in the sense that I think you know everything pulls from our experience. Um, this book that I've written takes place in uh, early 2002 in New York. It's it's the year after the World Trade Center. Uh, was attacked, the, the horrible events of 9-11. I was in New York then. I was working about six blocks away when that happened. Um, and it concerns, among other things, uh, sort of the, there's a character in it who I think represents some of the corrosive effects of sort of political talk radio. So it's very observational. I think certainly when you try to shape characters, they're based on traits you've seen in other people. I think, it, but I was thinking about it as I sit here talking to you. I, I think it comes from the same place of the work that you're doing. It comes from this curiosity about what it means to be a human on this earth. You know, I think, um, and and that's the thread through all of this conversation, and the thread through uh, the work you're doing with Gravity is, again, what is it like to be a human being uh, in this time? In this place, how do those experiences affect you? How do they affect the work you've done? And how uh, does all that experience, uh, how is it ex- expressed through you and affect other people? You know, I think it's, um, it all comes from the same place about this, the curiosity we have about the mystery that is living. And it is, I do think of it as, as mystery. It, it it all comes back to that for me. Yeah, um, yeah. I I really uh, I love that. You know, I love the the kind of mystery and all of it, and 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 yet the embrace and and kind of the beauty and and divine perfection that is there. And um, I'm reminded of a of a uh, quote that I I saw recently. Russell Brand reposted a George Eliot quote where. He said, what do we live for if it's not to make life, life less difficult for each other? And uh, I just, you know, think that's so wonderful. And, and uh, I love that you're writing, you know, and, and kind of that voice, um, you know, to some degree, like you're, you're, you're about trying to bring the human experience forward, which I do think is about uh, ultimately helping each other. Um, yeah. I hope so. You know, it's interesting. I I, I heard someone uh, or I read an article talking about, and it's certainly something that I ascribe to, that 
you know, in a career, and I certainly think of this in terms of my craft, there's sort of three phases. There's, um, there's learning, there's mastery, and then there's giving back in the form of teaching. And I, I certainly sort of ascribe to that in the third phase, you know, certainly in the work I do in my daily job, uh, I love the creative aspect of it. I, I really like the work I've done in advertising. It's challenging. It's fun. It can be very funny. I work with really creative people. But honestly, the piece, especially over the last 10 years, I get the most satisfaction from is watching young creative people you know, flower and become very productive and immerse themselves in their craft. And that for me is where I get the most last, lasting satisfaction. And I think that, and I think that that's analogous to a human life, you know, it has to do with the, I don't have children of my own, but I have 10 nieces and nephews and, and the joy I see in my siblings and the joy I see in my own life at, as the younger generation experiences things themselves and also uh, stumbles and hopefully benefits from the wisdom of the generation older than them, is that you have this opportunity to sort of share back to them what you've learned and hopefully help them, if not avoid some pitfalls, uh, understand them better and and walk away with an even richer understanding. Yeah. And and I think kind of going back to the, you know, advice you you didn't uh, take from your dad or, you know, the concern, <laughs> right? Like at the end of the day, um, all we can really do is just support each other as we all kind of have to walk our own path. Um, but I, I love the idea of giving back and teaching for sure. So Bruce, uh, this has been wonderful. I loved hearing your story. I'm, I'm energized by what you're doing now. I'm excited for your book um, and would love to stay in touch and pick your brain and maybe collaborate someday. Uh, before we wrap up, any final thoughts just uh, that you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, you know, it's interesting. We are, what, 300 and some days into a lockdown for many people and, and not for others with COVID-19, which is a, a, you know, it's the first time in my long life that uh seen a pandemic. And, you know, I think at this stage of this, in this time, I think the only thing we can do, far be it for me to tell other people, what to do themselves or how to live their lives. But what I've tried to take away from this moment is uh, that there's some positive in all this. I've spent a lot more time with my, with my wife and my family members and that we'll get through this, you know, and then there, there are positive things to be learned from it. And hopefully, as you mentioned earlier, I think the best thing we can do in a situation like this is be kind to one another. Yeah. Amen. Couldn't agree more. And you're right. You know, it's an opportunity for us to choose, you know, are we going to learn and get better and uh, maybe be a little kinder or how will this shape us? And uh, you're a great example of making good choices to uh, experience life in a beautiful way. So Thanks, Bruce. Oh, I've, I've made my share of bad ones, but thanks. <laughs> it's good to me. <laughs> well, maybe we'll talk about those on the next one. But next one. Yeah. Brett, yeah. thank you so much for having me on. I love, I love uh, the podcast and, uh, and health and happiness to you and your family yeah. uh, in the coming year. Wonderful. Thank you. You too, Bruce. 
Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at BKaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.